You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Well, good morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue in our series in uh, the Sermon on the Mount and finishing and con- con- keeping going here in the Beatitudes. Uh, most of us uh, have a fairly good picture in our minds or an idea of what our good life would look like. Um, you could ask anyone, you know, it's kind of like a good starter question, hey, what would make in your mind, make your life awesome or amazing, or what would your good life actually look like? And for many, when they think of the idea of the good life, that phrase, the good life, they're thinking of things like um, luxury and pleasure and material comfort. Um, They're painting in their minds a picture that has the colors of envy and desire and ambition and even coveting. It includes things like Houses and cars and trips and promotions and status and more and more and more and more and more and more. That's what a lot of people think of the good life. Now, you might be here this morning and say, that's not what my idea of the good life is. You might think your idea of the good life is actually a greater pursuit of something that's simpler or easier or less complicated or stress-free. And that'd be great. That's how sometimes we define the idea of the good life. Well, here in the Beatitudes, Jesus is actually painting for us a picture of what the good life is, what the blessed life is, what life in his kingdom is like. And he's painting the picture for us with the colors of grace and love and hope. Jesus' picture is radically different than our pictures. Actually, he's, I don't know, flipping our pictures upside down, if you want to think that. There are, there are no houses, no cars, no trips, no promotions, and, not, and it's not even stress-free. When Jesus is talking about this blessed life, in fact, he has things like poor in spirit and mourn mourning and being meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And then he has these two things that he says, the ones that we're going to look at this morning in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 5. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then he says this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, I want us to notice first and foremost, that these are Jesus' words. These are the words that Jesus spoke. These are not the words of a self-help guru who's giving you steps to a better life. We would radically misunderstand what Jesus is trying to say if we thought of that was what he was saying. These are actually the words from the Son of God himself. They're words of truth and they're words of life, but they're also words of invitation and words of promise. He says, those who are merciful and those who are pure in heart will be experiencing the blessed, contented, satisfied, may I even say, flourishing life. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, he says. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those who are merciful and pure in heart are experiencing the blessed life. Why is that the case? Here in verses 7 and 8, it's because the fundamental need of their lives has been met. And the longing of their souls is being fulfilled. When the fundamental need of your life is being met, and when the longing of your soul is actually fulfilled, you are blessed. You are satisfied. You are content. Your life is flourishing. And here in chapter 5, verse 7, he starts with us by identifying what one of, if not one of, if not the fundamental need of our life, and that is this here in verse 7, our need, God's mercy. Note how he starts, Jesus' words, blessed are the merciful. Now, how would you define merciful? You know, if you were like me in, in public school, you would take the cop out when the teacher asked the question, you'd say, well, being merciful is showing mercy towards others. <laughs> Ding. Got a gold star. No, not quite. Actually, when Jesus is using the word about being merciful, he's talking about compassion and action. Compassion and action. He illustrates that with the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verses 29 through 37. You remember in that story, there's a man who is attacked by robbers and he's left for to be dead on the side of the road. And there's this priest who comes down the road, and then also a Levite late after him comes down the side of the road. And they see this man on the side of the road, and instead of going over to help him, what do they do? They walk onto the other side of the road because they're afraid if they went and touched him, they would be religiously unclean. So in contrast to these two religious leaders, Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan who actually came down the same road, and when he saw him, it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 33, it says, the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. But his compassion was more than just a feeling. You know, there are many times in our lives we, we feel compassion towards other people. We have this... It's, it's like, a, like a feeling, uh, but it, it wasn't just a feeling for him. He actually stopped. He actually went over to this man, and he takes care of him. He binds up his wounds. He takes him to an inn. He pays for his stay at the inn. And Jesus is using this illustration in, in, a, in a discussion with another man, and he says this, it says this in Luke chapter 10, verses 36 and 37. Jesus asked this question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man he's talking to says, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Here, Jesus in the, in the parable is equating this idea of compassion with mercy. Compassion equals mercy, and it's more than just a feeling. It's action-filled. It's risky. And the fact that he stopped, he took a risk. He could have caught a disease from this man. I don't know how long he had been by the side of the road. 
he could have been robbed by the same robbers. I mean, we have no idea. He stopped and he took a risk. It was costly for him. He actually had to pay out of his own resources to take care of this man. Being merciful, being merciful is this kind of compassion in action. So Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. And we are actually merciful when we help others who are in need, like the man in this story left to die. The Samaritan had compassion that led to an action. And many of you, I know, are involved in those kinds of, of ministries, actually, you're in, in your life. You know, it won't be rare for some of you tomorrow would actually stop and help somebody who is a person in need. And we do that also corporately together here in this church. I think of some of our ministries here at our church, like the market ministry and um, the relationship we have with safe families or our deacons ministry, or even many of us who are, have had the privilege to actually help many kids around the world through compassion ministry by supporting those children in different places around the world, taking care of their education needs, their needs within their churches and things like that. And so I know many of us are involved in those kinds of ministries. This is what I've learned about ministry of mercy or being merciful. It's complex. Right? It's risky. It's costly sometimes. And that's what it means to be merciful. It means that's what compassion and action is all about. We are merciful when we actually help others who are in need, not only with their physical needs, but also with their spiritual needs. So I'm reminded of how Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38 says, when he saw the crowds, he had, look at, there it is again, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Matthew 9, 36 through 38. Jesus sees the crowd. He has compassion on them, but then he takes action. What's the first step in the action, his action steps? He says to the disciples, I want you to what? Pray. I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers. But Jesus, the story doesn't stop there because in the very next verses, Jesus, it says in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus took amongst all of his disciples, he set apart his 12 apostles. And then what did he do? He actually sent them out. He sent them out. Compassion in action. It just wasn't uh, something that Jesus felt. It was actually something that Jesus mobilized his own disciples for. And when I think of this, I think of the billions of people around this world, uh, over three billion people around this world who do not even know the name of Jesus. So many people in this world have never heard the name of Jesus. What's our response to that? Indifference? Someone else's problem? You know, I just want to remind you of the fact that Jesus actually commissioned his disciples and therefore through his disciples, the church of Jesus Christ, to actually go to all people groups and make disciples. In other words, that is not optional. It's more like 
I, I'm in, I should be engaged in this. I don't know what my part's going to be. I don't know what exactly my part is that I'm supposed to play. All I know is I've got a part to play, whatever it is. I, we've got to somehow mobilize to somehow meet, let, allow people to hear the name of Jesus and learn the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's 3.2 billion people in this world. I think about the city, our cities and towns, even really close to us around here in our own country. And I'm just talking about our own country. Where churches have abandoned the true gospel, or they're preaching a false gospel, or maybe in, in the, as, as houses are being built and towns are being developed, there's actually no gospel witness at all. What's our response to this? What's my response to this? Well, man, I'm really glad it's not me, man. I'm glad I've got a good church to go to. Praise the Lord for that. But are we moved with compassion to action, to be merciful, to ask the question, what actually is our part? I'm thankful for a church that's constantly asking that question. We are merciful when we help others when they're in need, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual. And then Jesus reminds us many times throughout the Gospels that we are merciful when we forgive those who have sinned against us. No better story than the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. Do you remember him? Jesus is telling a story. And so in his story, he tells a story about a master and a servant and the servant owned this master 10,000 talents. This is Jesus' way of saying a lot of cash, a lot of money. Some think that that's 10,000 talents represents 20 years of wages. Others think even more than that. It's, it's, it's for us, it would be like millions of dollars. Millions of dollars that this servant owns, owes, to this owes to this master. But in chapter 18, verse 27, it says the master, in interaction with this servant, out of pity for him, another word for compassion, out of pity for him, actually released him and forgave him of his debt. That's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? To actually think that the master would be willing to take that off his balance sheet and just forgive that debt millions of dollars. And so he does that, and then what happens in this story that Jesus is telling he, he, uh, this servant then leaves this scene with the master, and the first thing he does is he runs out and tries to find somebody that owes him money. There's another servant that owes the, the, the servant to the master 100 days of wages, which, by the way, is not a small amount. Right? 100 days of wages. It's of some consequence, but in comparison to what he's just been forgiven, it's a very small amount. And so the master finds out that that's what the servant did, and he asks him this question in Matthew chapter 18, verse 33. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And the answer to that question is yes. He should have had mercy on his fellow servant as, as the master had had mercy on him. You say, well, what does that have to do with forgiveness? Well, that's because it has everything to do with forgiveness. Because in the context of this parable, Peter, before Jesus told the story, Peter actually asked him, 
How many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus says seven times 70 or 70 times seven times. And then he tells them this story. He tells them the story. Blessed are the merciful, those who help those who are in need and those who forgive those who have sinned against them. And you, like me, ask this question in response to that. How is this even remotely possible? Well, not in our own strength, that's for sure. You can't just flip a switch and tomorrow be merciful. No, we are merciful towards others when we are abiding in God's mercy for us. Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, the whole of our life is an expression and proclamation of what we really are. And if we are truly Christ followers and we understand that in our faith in Jesus Christ, we have received mercy from God, then we in turn will be merciful. We are merciful towards others when we're abiding in God's mercy for us. That means we have to be growing in our understanding of the depth of the offense of our sin and our sin nature towards God. This is exactly what Jesus said when he said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who are mourning. I find it very interesting to me. Like for, for me, I am very, very quick to deal with with sin on a horizontal level. Let me back up for a second, because some of you might say, I don't know, I don't think you were that quick the last time when we had to deal with something. Okay, so I got it. Let me just say, I, 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 it's, I'm more aware of the horizontal nature of sin than I am in my daily life at the vertical nature of my sin. Um. You know, some of you maybe have said hurtful words to somebody even last night or maybe even this morning. I think there's sometimes we are quick to try to repair those things as we should be quick to repair those things. But we need to remember that every single time that we sin against someone else, we're not just sinning against the person. We're actually sinning against the holy God of this universe. And I wonder sometimes if we feel like it's not that big of a deal to God. Somehow we're not grasping the holiness of God and the absolute affront that sin is to him. Every sin is like millions of dollars of indebtedness to God. To be merciful, to be merciful, to actually forgive someone that, who has hurt you, it, it, takes, it takes the ability and the understanding to grasp the holiness of God and the depth of your sin towards God and how, how awful of an affront that is to him. And that leads us to this, and also a growing realization of the depth of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Do you, do you know that when Jesus tells a story about the Good Samaritan, that really what he's saying is, I'm the Good Samaritan. Jesus is our Good Samaritan. 
In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, the Apostle Paul reminds us that Christ, the Son of God, left heaven. He became a servant. He took on the form of humanity. He was born in our likeness. He became obedient unto death. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, for who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Or Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus was compassion in action. He knew our need. He had eternal love and compassion for us, and he acted. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life, and he died for our sins so that as we respond in faith to what he has done for us and who he is, we could be forgiven of all the sin that we are indebted to for the Lord. All of it taken care of, all of it gone. And when we are growing in the realization of how awful our sin is before the Lord, and we grow in our realization of the depth of God's salvation for us in Jesus Christ, it then allows us to grow in our freedom to be merciful towards others. It actually actually brings, I think, a sense of empathy. When someone hurts me, I I don't necessarily have to excuse the sin. We shouldn't excuse the sin. But I think, like Sproul said, you know, I have this empathy. I should have this empathy in my mind. Sproul said this. He says, you know, given the same circumstances, I would probably do the same thing. How do I know that to be true? Because I know. Because as you're growing in the depth of the understanding of the the darkness sometimes of your heart and the sinfulness of your heart, you understand that. See, no matter how terrible the sin committed against me, it's nothing in comparison to the sin that I've committed against God and, and, and the forgiveness that I've received from God in Jesus Christ. Blessed are the merciful. He says, for they shall receive mercy. Jerry Bridges uh, defines mercy this way. I like this. He says, God never gives us what we deserve, and he always gives us what we need. God never gives us what we deserve. Well, we know what we deserve because of our sinful nature and our sinfulness before the Lord. What we deserve is we deserve hell. We deserve eternal judgment. We deserve the wrath of God. God is a holy God. He must judge sin. So that's what we deserve. But he always gives us what we need. Praise the Lord. In Christ, God never gives us what we deserve. Praise the Lord. In Christ, he always gives us what we need. That's that's a boatload of confidence right there. It's a boatload of confidence to know that, that, that I can be, be merciful because I have received and I will receive the mercy of the Lord. In Christ, God extends mercy to us that frees us to be merciful, knowing that God will now in the future continue to give us mercy. That's confidence. That's the blessed life to know that the fundamental need of my life has been met in Jesus Christ. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Those of us, if you are in Christ and you are dwelling and reminding yourself and replaying the gospel of Jesus Christ, understanding the, the, the terribleness of your sin towards the Lord and understanding the amazing things that, that, of forgiveness that, Christ, that God has given to you in Jesus Christ, that frees you up. It frees you up to be able to be merciful. Those who are growing in their understanding of God's mercy are indeed merciful. And that's the blessed life. Now he goes on and he says in verse 8, he says, not only, not only is our fundamental need met, but our, the longing, our longing is actually fulfilled. You see our longing here? Our longing here in verse 8 is to see God. Look at what he says. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is, this is like one of the most beautiful and hope-filled statements in all of Scripture. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's full of so much hope. But it's also one of the most startling statements of Scripture. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Right? Really? Is this true? He starts, Jesus starts by look, talking to us about our heart. And contrary to our culture, and the idea of heart being somehow the seat of romantic feelings or even just feelings alone, the scriptures talk about the heart as being the essence of who you are. That includes your emotion, your intellect, your will. It's what God examines. 1 Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at, on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Matthew 12, 20, uh, 34, Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the essence of who you are. Right? That's what happens. He's talking about being pure in heart. In Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, a great summary of what is trying to be talked about here. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who can get to see God or be with God or be in his presence? Right? These two powerful questions. The answer is this. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. This is, there's a thing in, in, the, in the Hebrew language called parallelism. Like, you know, in poetry, you have parallelism where ideas are kind of, they're, they're different, but they're also very much related to one another, kind of trying to say the same thing, maybe in different ways. That's what's happening here in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He's talking about single-mindedness. Look at James chapter 4, verse 8. Same kind of idea. James says this, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Earlier in verse 4, he talked about the double-minded man being the person who is trying to be friends with the world while at the same time of being friends with, with God himself. You can't do that. You have to have an undivided allegiance, a single-minded pursuit of God. So when it comes to the essence of who you are, a pure heart is having a single-minded pursuit of God. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. You can't love money and God, he said. No one can serve two masters. John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, you can't love the world or the things of the world. 
I was reading in, the, in Ezekiel a couple of weeks ago, and over and over and over and over again, right? Ezekiel is declaring the, God's words of condemnation to the nation of Israel because they were trying to worship Yahweh while they were trying to worship the other gods that they had set up. It's, hard, it's almost mind-blowing for me to think, here's this nation that was set apart by the Lord, right? His people, his family, his nation, and they decided at, at some point, they decided we're not just going to worship Yahweh. We're actually going to start worshiping Baal and Moloch. Do you know, in, during Ezekiel's time, they were not only trying to worship Yahweh, but they were sacrificing their children to Moloch. You think, well, that's crazy. How in the world would anybody do that? And then I thought about my own life, my own heart. Trying to worship Yahweh and trying to worship other gods at the same time. That's like the guy who's trying to love his wife and his girlfriend at the same time. Guaranteed, guaranteed that your hands are not clean and your heart is not pure. An undivided heart is what is required. A single-minded pursuit is what is required. So just like when I read, blessed are the merciful, I'm left with this question when I read, blessed are the pure in heart. How, how can I have this kind of single-minded pursuit of the Lord? Well, not my own strength. So I'm not, I, I can't flip that switch. The Spirit of God is the one who's going to have to do that in my heart and in your heart. And that comes from a growing understanding that on our own, our hearts are not pure. They're not single-minded. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. You can't do this on your own. This is not in our own strength. We have to have a growing realization of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Jesus is the perfectly pure in heart one. He was the one who came with an undivided heart. He said, I've come to this earth to do the will of my Father. It was clear what he was doing. He, it was, and he's the perfectly pure one. He's the perfectly whole one. And he, he died for us so that we could, we could have a pure heart and then we could live that pure heart out. John Piper says it this way. He says, Jesus didn't come into the world simply because we have some bad habits that need to be broken. He actually came into the world because we have such dirty hearts that need to be purified. I think some of us think that we're attached to Jesus because we want our habits changed. No, well, Jesus is saying, great, I'll take away the behavioral stuff, but really what I want is I want your heart. I've come to purify your heart. I got my uh, oil changed a few weeks ago, and um, turns out I waited too long. Anyone else? Thank you. Um, you know what? It's, I, I checked the dash thing, and it said I had like 30% left, and I thought, well, you know, like, this is a good time now to get it changed. 
So the guy, he took this, this uh, dipstick thing, that's what I call it. I don't know if that's what it's called. I really don't know, but that's what I grew up calling it, a dipstick. And he took it. I just, I'm watching, you know, the, the hood's up, and I'm watching him at the front. He dips it in, pulls it out, wipes it off, and then dips it back in. I have no idea why they wipe it off, but they, he, he, that's what he did. He, and, and, and then he pulled it back out, and then, and then he looked at me. <laughs> and he decided that he was actually going to come over to my window. It's like the slow walk of shame. <laughs> he says, uh, sir, you, uh, you want, want to take a look at, your, at this thing? Oh, you mean the dipstick? Yeah, okay, I'll take a look at it. And I said, what am I looking for? He said, well, you should be looking for traces of oil. <laughs> Do you see any traces of oil? <laughs> so... Say no, 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 no. I said, but so then I, you know, clearly blame shifting. It's not my fault. It's the dash. It's my car dash's fault. Even though I have a date that's passed like six months too far. <laughs> if God were to be doing a check on your heart, and He was going to be as He is right now, I believe the Spirit of God was penetrating into your heart right now, and. The tool would be pulled out to measure where your heart's at. I wonder where that would be. Is it a pure heart? Is it a divided heart? Is it an undivided heart? Are you in single pursuit after the Lord? Because when you realize what Jesus has done for you on the cross, it leads, it leads you to a passionate pursuit of God, to hunger and thirst for his righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, he says, the love of Christ controls us. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. David said in Psalm 51.10, he says, Lord, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. James chapter 4, verse 8, he says, you draw near to God, and he will what? Draw near to you. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Confess. Repent. Confess. Repent. Confess. Repent. And those who are, have a pure heart, it says, they shall see God. Everyone wants this. There's this hole in every single person's life that needs to be filled, and we try to fill it with so many different things, so many different idols in our lives. Like sometimes that's family, sometimes it's experiences, sometimes it's status, sometimes it's power, sometimes it's material things. We try to stuff this hole full with all these different things. But you know why the hole is there? The hole is there because we have a longing to see God. That's what it means to be blessed. That's what it means to be content. That's what it means to be fulfilled. That's what it means to have a life that's flourishing when you are seeing God. Now, throughout scriptures, the, the idea of seeing God is used both literally and figuratively to talk about our experience with God. 
to be with him, to be in awe of him, to understand him, to actually even be comforted by him, like Psalm 27, where it says, Lord, hide not your face from me. One day, one day in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to see God. We're going to experience God perfectly and completely. I think about the discussion, the dialogue that Moses had with God, and God said, you know, you, you can't see me and live, and then yet the promise of the future of us to be able to actually to see and experience God completely and fully. Today we experience him in a way that gives us a glimpse of that eternal glory. We draw near to him and he draw nears to us. So that's why we clean our hands and purify our heart. We pursue after him with a single-mindedness, with our confession and our repentance. And then we experience him. All of us have these dreams. You have a dream about what your good life is supposed to look like, but many of us are just looking in all the wrong places. And Jesus in the Beatitudes is inviting us. He's promising us blessing, satisfaction, contentment, flourishing. Blessed are the merciful, he says, for they shall receive mercy. The needs being met, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. My longing is fulfilled. And none of that is possible without Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. Being merciful and pure in heart requires of us a deep remembrance of the Lord and what he's done for us. To consider the depth of our sin and the glorious forgiveness that we have found in our salvation. That takes us daily to remember what Jesus has done for us. We're going to take part in communion now. And if you have not placed your faith in Jesus for your salvation, I just want to say thank you for being here with us today. Some of you are seeking. Some of you are searching. Some of you have not yet what I would call stepped over to the other side of your trust relationship with the Lord. Thank you so much for being here. But as we practice this, as we participate in our communion together, I just want to encourage you to consider the truth that you're watching, that Jesus Christ actually died for us, that he paid the penalty for our sins. And that frees us to be actually merciful and pure in heart. For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, this is a time for us to examine ourselves. As we take the cups that are going to be passed to us in just a moment with the cup and the bread in it, we should be quick to confess and repent of our sin. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ we do not receive what we deserve. And yet he always gives us what we need. So I want to invite the servers to come forward and let's just pray right now. Father, I just pray for us as the song is sung, as we are about to receive these elements of the the bread and the juice that represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would 
help us to reflect and ask ourselves these questions. Am I truly merciful? Am I truly pure in heart, Lord? And in this moment, as we consider the death of Jesus Christ, may we consider our sin and may we consider how you have, you have made it possible for our sins to be forgiven. Lord, lead us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.